Welcome to a very spooky episode of Ward Council. This is Caleb Dillon with White Metal Games. This is Philip uh, with White Metal Games. Philip was not aware that I was going to do a spooky introduction. I don't know if there was a vampire. I think I was trying to do a Dracula. But maybe like... A little bit. uh, Yeah. I kind of... Transylvania. Yeah, a little bit. It was buried in there. (laughs) Deep in the... I'm not an accent guy. There's a reason I'm a director, (laughs) not an actor. I'm not that kind of guy. Well, welcome to World Council. World Council is a hobby-centered podcast for miniature enthusiasts. Um, This is episode 37, Don't Fear the Reaper. And today on the show, we're going to be talking with Reaper Miniatures, specifically Reaper Brian. He is going to give us the ins and outs of Reaper Miniatures, um, arguably the largest uh, solo uh, miniature um, company in the world. Mm-hmm. They do. Uh, they have 4,000 active models in production at any point in time. Um, and those are all single figures. These are not sets. These are singles. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, that doesn't even count the figures they've that have expired, so to speak, that they've retired for the time being. So those are retired molds. They can obviously bust them out you know, if they need to. Um, but yeah, they're just a huge, huge company. Um, and they do them all the old-fashioned way. It's all like resin. It's all, it's all molds. It's not vacuum form or anything like that so um although what we did uh, what we are going to find out later is what sort of new technology they're getting into you know are they going to embrace 3d printing are they going to move forward into into you know what are they going to do next what's next for reaper because they already do paints and miniatures so they have lots of stuff going on and they're they're certainly an industry innovator uh, before we get to that, though, um, a couple things to uh, clear up. Um, so um, today on the show, we're going to be talking about um, not only with Reaper, but we're going to be talking about spooky Halloween-style effects for our Halloween episode. Spooky. We're going to be, uh, yeah, uh, I wonder what the origin of spooky is, now that you mention it that way. I don't know. I don't know either. Spook, I think, used to be a reference to, like, uh, like spies or, or like, you know, assassins or something, I feel like, in war. I feel like maybe it was a racist term. I'm not for sure. <laughs> I don't actually awesome. don't. I really don't know. I've never, I've never actually questioned the origin of no? the No? Okay. Well, you know. Points for whoever can tell us the origins of the word spooky. Um, we do have uh, at least one or two new reviews on iTunes right now. You can check us out if you follow the link to iTunes. You can see those reviews. People seem to be enjoying the show. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. You can follow it directly from the website. Just go to White Metal Games slash podcasts. You can find all of our podcasts. You can find a link at the top of the page to our um, iTunes page. We have um, 36 episodes there now. You can listen to them in order. We recommend starting around 10 or 11 because the show format changed around that time. Um, So uh, essentially you can go back to the beginning, but I don't necessarily recommend it. They were like three-hour shows back then. (laughs) They were were quite long. (laughs) Uh, okay, so a couple um, housekeeping issues to take care of. So um, first off, I know we've said this many, many times before, so this will be very, very brief. We are still pursuing a charity raffle army with Nova Open. Uh, currently, they are in kind of their post-Nova uh, period right now. It's yeah. kind of like they just had the event last month. They're sort of – it's only been a month now. Yeah. So I think they're just still kind of catching their breath. So now <laughs> they're, they're taking long overdue vacations, that kind of thing. Hopefully not this weekend with the hurricane. Yeah, uh, but, yeah, that's coming up the coast. Yeah, so, to hit every single place and no place at all. Right, <laughs> all we're actually going to Charlotte this weekend. We're going uh, to a lake house there, uh, but it it is like several hundred miles inland. So be fine. yeah, I think I think we're going to get a lot of rain. But we were kind of of the opinion that like being locked indoors with your with your people you love when it's raining is kind of okay. Yeah, just bring uh, some board games. Yeah, beer. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I will be catching up on projects all weekend, so I'll basically be doing what I do 
there, just here, but there. Right. <laughs> so that's okay. Uh, anyway, so we are still pursuing that project with them, and we look forward to working with it more in the future. We are still taking suggestions for names if, or, or for projects if anyone has some ideas. We have a couple ideas internally in-house. Um, one thing we know is, um, according to Matt at Titan Terrain Studio, we're going to get a bunch of uh, bench of tactical marines. So we can simply, I mean, we have the origins or the basics of a, a marine army, so we'll probably go marine, but we'll see. Um, okay, so that's happening still. Um, in addition, now that Gene Stiller Cult has just hit, we don't generally do product reviews anymore, but I will just simply say that Gene Stiller Cult is out. People seem to be embracing it. Um, unlike some of the supplemental codexes, this is a full-on codex. So it's a full yeah. army, basically. Um, you know, there's plenty of formations, plenty of units, plenty of support in it. They can ally with other armies. So it's, it's a, it's a good looking codex. And because of that, now we can expand the death watch commission to include Gene Stiller cult. So it doesn't necessarily have to just be a tandem death watch commission. It can be a tandem death watch versus Xenos commission, which would go to say that if you're a Gene Stiller cult player and you want to get in on it, you can also get in on the action. We can essentially, if we have enough people, we can buy sets of the, of the games. We can buy the, Death Watch Overkill game split up the sets, and our um, Gene Stealer clients can enjoy those models, whereas our Death Watch models clients can enjoy the other models. And uh, in theory, if someone was getting in on the Eldar side of things, we could even split it up further. So that's the goal with this: is the Tandem Commission goal is to be able to provide unique a unique service to a larger group of people. Um, so we did extend that deadline to November 1st. So if you're interested in that, contact us at info at whitemetalgames.com. We'll be happy to talk with you about our tandem commissions up to 10% off if we get enough people to book. Awesome. Which, you know, is, That's a great deal. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the kind of rate we reserve for people that normally book projects over $2,000. Mm-hmm. So you can't get that rate, generally speaking, unless you are that client, except for these tandem commissions. So um, I think it's a pretty good deal. Yeah. So. so they basically build off of each other's – it's a bigger project. So yeah, it gives us the work we need to way. justify the discounts, mm-hmm. and it gives them the rate that they would love to have. Yeah. So I think it's a cool idea. I mean, it, it could be that it's just taking a while to catch on, you know, but uh, who knows? We'll see. Uh, and we're still running the 8% off um, labor on Undead up until Halloween, so you still have about three and a half weeks on that one. Um, so this podcast will come out long before Halloween, kind of misscheduled a little bit. <laughs> I thought we were running behind. We're actually back on schedule now. So um, you'll have plenty of time if you're hearing this podcast before Halloween 2016. If you're interested in booking some undead, we're offering 8% off labor on those commissions up through Halloween. The project will be fulfilled after Halloween, though. It'll be fulfilled in the winter holiday. Um, so you just have to book and lay down your deposit before Halloween, though. Um, okay. Any other intro items? You anything on your mind you want to cover right now? Uh, Did you guys? Um, I know we had talked about um, briefly. We talked about the Krieg project is finishing up. We'll talk about yeah. this more in a minute. But I know we had talked about um, bringing that over to Spiky Bet so they could do some videos on it. Do you guys set that up for goal. the weekend? I think mm-hmm. so. I believe it's. I mean, the army's on track to be done in the yeah. next day or two. So That's awesome. We should be right on schedule. Great. Um, and weather permitting, I know it's yeah. hurricanes coming up. So. I don't know um, where um, Spiky Bits is based out of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Yeah. I'm not for sure how close that is to the shore. Well, it's supposed to. I mean, it's going to be raining a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. supposed to be hitting it on Saturday, oh. so it's going to be right in that area. It could be really torrential downpours. I don't know. Yeah, and being that it's a military town, I don't know how they treat storms differently. If they lock it down or some shit. Yeah, elevation like, wise, it could be flooding. That's like, true. I don't know yeah. And we recently, um, where was the city that recently flooded in Carolina? Was it Fayetteville? It wasn't Fayetteville. It was. Um, South Carolina, I thought. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Well, that was last... Yeah, I mean, they are in a low-lying area, so yeah. they get a lot of bad rains. 95, in fact, last year, we got stuck. 
90, huge portions of 95 had flooded and were underwater. Really? So we had to divert hundreds of, like, at least 100 miles. Okay. Um, it took us nine or ten hours to get home for what was normally a four-hour drive. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when the rains come, you know, definitely be aware there's, mm-hmm. there's some risk. Be yeah, safe, yeah, stay home, sure. paint, or whatever. Um, okay, well, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to jump back in with On the Painting Desk right after this mission, this mission, right after this message from Frontline Gaming. Hey guys, PewDiePie here from Frontline Gaming. Are you tired of playing tabletop games on the same old foldable table? Do you have to lug around a bulky Roma Battle table terrain set? Looking for a gaming mat to match the theme of your army and wow your friends? Then look no further than the Frontline Gaming and Table Warp Fat Mat series. Our fat mats are durable, waterproof, and come in 6x4 foot, 4x4 foot, and 3x3 foot sizes. With over 25 different images to choose from, we have a fat mat for every tabletop game. Get yours today at FrontlineGaming.org. Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, we're going to jump into On the Painting Desk. This segment of the show is sponsored by Frontline Gaming, FrontlineGaming.org, your source for all things ITC, terrain scenes. They also sell product at 25% off GW rate, so you can pick up the new Gene Stiller Cult stuff uh, at a good rate from their store. Um, they also have their own in-house commission painting service, um, and we're going to be talking with one of their artists on the next show uh, about his technique and how he works, and he has a really uh, unusual trademark, so to speak, uh, so we're going to be talking to him on the show next time. We'll get into that a little bit more in the outro. But for now, we're going to talk about what we're painting on. Uh, oh, you know, actually, before we jump out um, too far, uh, so I, I wanted to point out that um, Frontline Gaming just released a new mat. It's a new grassy mat. I think it's called oh, yeah. Grassy Mat 2. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's nice. It's a really, really nice-looking mat. It's a nice, you know, essentially a little variety. All their mats are great. Yeah. It's yeah. Just a, I think they just switched a few of the features on it but it's the mm-hmm. same look same colors so. yeah i mean they've always been a quality product certainly an industry innovation i think that now the people are sort of copying them in fact one of the companies that copying them is gw but here's my question G- oh yeah well and it's it's interesting here's my question and i haven't really posed this to either of you guys yet so they released this new mat gw just released a mat but it's a four by four yeah why would they release a four by four for their idea. game no idea okay so i've got a theory mm-hmm. here's my theory my theory is that they just released, um, you know, a couple months ago, they have a new site called, like, what's it called? Like, Battle for Macrage, or, or, or it's, it's some Battle, Battle for Vandros. Battle for Vandros. Or Vadros, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, or Vadros, I'm not for sure which. But it's essentially, it's it's Games Workshop Lite. It's designed for kids. Mm-hmm. They're snap-together kits. The painting tutorials are much simpler. So here's my thinking. Very few people have a 4 by 6 table. But almost all of us have a 4 by 4 table, whether it be a card table or a kitchen True. table or a dining room table. So my thinking is is that they did it this way to make it more appealing to kids and to also make it more appealing to parents. And on top of that, the price point's lower, I think. I don't actually know the price it's point on it. It's actually pretty really? high. It's like $85. Really? Yeah, that's actually, that's actually not as good as, as I thought it would be. Yeah, Frontline mats are 8 or, or 95 yeah. And you can even get that cheaper through us. Um, so that's crazy. Yeah, so that's my only theory is that they're doing it because essentially it's a better entry point for kids in terms of space, not in terms of price, apparently. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about that? Like, I mean, I guess maybe it's like when you think about games like Privateer Press's um, Worm Hordes, mm-hmm. that's a played on a 4x4 traditionally. So maybe this is their way of competing with that? I don't know. The only thing I can think of is, so the rumor is that in November or sometime soon they're going to be coming out with the new edition of 40K. And so perhaps they're changing some things up. Sure. Um, they've already announced that they're gutting data cards. So Gene Sears was the last ones that will get data cards. 
So. I wonder why they do that. Because I buy a set every time I'm, I'm serious about playing an army. Mm-hmm. Like, I bought it for orcs. I just bought it for cult. Um, it not could th- be that they're changing the mechanics of the game. Well, they've talked about a new edition a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it. Because yeah. I love the cards. Yeah, I mean, the I think there's, they're great when it comes down to, like, mission objectives and that kind right. of stuff. And uh, Okay, well, that's interesting. I was just curious. I was sort of pick your brain. It's only that I can think of. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know why they wouldn't have released it, or at the very least release it in two versions, a 4x4 and a 4x6. Right. Because then you have an option for both. I don't but know. It's also a different... So it's a neo... It's neoprene. Your, neoprene, yeah. Which mm-hmm. is that's the same as frontline game. I think so. I think that they're both thin. neoprene. Okay, but Although, it's super thin. Like, yeah, GW's is, it, is like paper thin, mm-hmm. whereas frontlines is an actual thicker material. So frontlines is a, is a quality mat. Yeah. Um, now I have seen some people doing dual printed mats where each side is printed, and that sounds good in terms of value. Mm-hmm. But I'm not for sure what. Um, I'm not for sure how that affects the mat. Like, does it? Is it a different? Quality, you know what I mean. I'd like to see. I'd like to see one yeah. in person. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but it's it's cool to see GW get on the bandwagon. Although, if you want a four by six mat, your best source is still FrontlineGaming.org, in yeah. my opinion. Okay. Um, so, uh, painting desk um, took us forever to get back. What are we What are we painting on at the moment, Philip? What are you guys working on? Uh, a lot of different things. So, as we've stated the last couple of weeks, we are still working on the Krieg and the Seraphim. Um, so, these are two huge armies with display boards and everything involved. So. Krieg will be finished this week. Um, Seraphon, we're hoping to be finished by next Friday. We want to present these really? at uh, at Armies on Parade. That's our I say point. really not because I doubt your guys' ability, but because it's, it's a, a huge project. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, big project. But um, hopefully with Krieg getting off our desks and finishing up actually a couple other, mm-hmm. like Tito's bikes and yeah. um, a few smaller things, that will give us just a week or and a half straight just to focus on that. So. Do you find, because um, one of the things we've learned this year is that when you balance multiple projects, I, I think Val put it really well one time. He said that um, sometimes you have so much going on you get nothing done. Pretty you much. Know? Yeah. yeah. Kind that's of, that's kind something of... we've had been battling mm-hmm. ourselves. So since me and Val have been doing co-ops and stuff, it's been, with all these different projects, it's been difficult to figure out, okay, what do we do? What do we start on? Um, and we've gotten back into the groove of... Yeah, each morning starting off, okay, what are we going to work on today? What are the priorities for the day? Yeah, how are we gonna I do that in? myself. Yeah. yeah, And we've done that to a degree, but we haven't been doing as much on, okay, how are we going to work together on this? It's been more like, I'll focus on this, you focus on that, and it's not as efficient. So we're trying to get re- re-engage that and, and figure out a better working process. I mean, to kind of get into that a little bit more, I mean um, – this kind of goes back, but in the past, like obviously I was a solo painter and then I brought you into the commission. Mm-hmm. So you became a solo painter working independently. And then when Val came in, um, he is kind of acting as sort of a deep facto project lead for you two. So, you know, he and you get together and powwow and decide on things and you guys are now working together. And the idea is that um, the things that you are stronger on you do and the things that he's stronger on he does and the notion is that in theory it creates a, a, a faster product faster turnaround more it's more of a, a shared environment and more of a studio environment versus a bunch of solo artists working on their own for me this is really cool because this is kind of a test because depending on how this works we could use this to reinvent everything like we can essentially yeah. reinvent 
everything from the pricing to the commissions to how pay is worked out with the artists. Like, there's room for this to work, but this has been kind of a dry run to see how it works, that kind of thing. And there's there's ups and downs with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's cool about this is you guys your strengths can complement each other. Um, right. I think what this calls into question is whether or not uh, the queue system works the way that it was originally designed. You know, if, for example, if a project runs behind. Or if we have multiple, there may be some advantage to doing one project at a time as opposed to multiple projects. Correct. Yeah. You know? So essentially, like, rather than like working on a solo figure for two weeks, we could work on it for two days, and yep. just be like, basically have an order where you know clients are like, you're fifteenth in order, mm-hmm. and when they come up, we whack out their project as quick as we can. The way I went, the reason I went against that in the beginning was because small commissions then get lost. Mm-hmm. Like in theory, small yeah. commissions are slave to big commissions. So if a commission is going to take two months, those clients are waiting two months, which seems stupid for the guys who send us one figure. Right. Um, so it's it's tricky. Obviously, we're still learning, um, yeah. but that's okay. It's a work in progress. But. Um, okay, so you guys are planning to have both the Krieg and the Seraphon done by um, by Armies on Parade, which yep. is the goal. And the Seraphon um, are certainly the ones that the board needs a lot of a lot of love. But you guys have jumped, went ahead and jumped onto the figures. The client was super super yeah. excited with the status. Um, he, he really likes to see progress, and that's why we do the weekly updates is so people can see the progress and and they can be involved in their own projects. Um, what else are you guys working on? Well, we're also getting so this is pretty exciting um one of my goals since the beginning has always been to do higher end projects uh low model count even just single figures on a display and so recently we've gotten quite a few of these yeah um, it's kind of like uh, when, it, when it rains it pours yeah yeah we got about three of them in it within a, about a week or two um that we're working on so they're custom characters uh we've done a death watch uh watchmaster mm-hmm. we've done an inquisitor and we've done um gabriel angelus actually from the uh on a war series yeah and by custom characters and all of these guys are unique i mean if we were to break them down a little bit for example pablo's watchmaster pablo at frontline gaming um we're doing he requested a custom figure for his death watch army so we actually took um a 30k um chaplain i think his name's kurtha said and we uh, you guys essentially kit bashed him yep. and used parts from um, the death watch models and, and whatever and built an, a custom death watch master yeah which is great he looks awesome and we plinthed him so now the new character series we're generating basically these guys will be on plinths so they're more of a display piece really Um, generally speaking across the board platinum level models Um, Gabriel Angelos is another good example where we're kit bashing and he's an extensive conversion like he starts with like a Praetor Tribune which is an out of stock out of production limited edition edition model which we're now going to butcher so to speak, yeah. uh, you know, in order to create this Gabriel Angelo's character, which is a, I, I guess, a very popular video game character um, in the was it, in the Dawn of War series. Donald, yeah, he's yeah. the main. I think he's the, he's the main guy. Yeah. yeah, and he's awesome. He's a cool figure, and the, and the client's been excited about that for a while. Um, what was the third one? The third one is this. Oh, the Inquisitor. Yeah, so we've done actually two of those. We did one which was based on the client's concept, and then the second one was essentially an open-ended ticket yeah. where the client simply said, "Design an Inquisitor for me. He has to be original." And I think he, he definitely is. Oh, he's, yeah, yeah, completely original. He looks fantastic. I, yeah. We were really happy with the way he turned out. So. What's really neat about that guy is that um, essentially the client gave us some direction. Like he wanted him to have a sword. He wanted him yeah. to be – he wanted these aspects and elements. But then from that, um, we were able to design the figure in um, Illustrator, or Val was able to design it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> from that, we were able to get client feedback. And after that, we were then able to um, apply that feedback – get the direct bits we needed. So essentially the, the 
figure is very, very close to the concept. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 almost spot on. Which means, in my opinion, that's great because sometimes you, when you kit bash, you're slave to the bits. In this case, the bits were slaves to us. Right. Like we told those bits what we wanted, and the bits <laughs> gave it to us. Um, which sounds very sexual when I say that's that. Way. <laughs> um, but what's nice about this is it allows us to take existing bits and we can really kind of conceptualize the project better when we need to modify it or convert it. We can, but um, as a deliverable to a client, that means they they know what they're getting. Yeah, you know, you can see visually mm-hmm. you know, the whole process. So. And it's a way for us to collaborate before we actually start gutting up a kit, too, yeah. which is great. So. To make better use of it, so that kind of thing. One of the, We were also recently approached by a 3D graphic artist, and um, essentially she designs 3D, I forget what they call them, shells or schemes or something like that, for okay. figures, and you can, in theory, send it to a 3D printing company. So the now while we are still exploring this concept, the potential here is that clients could, artists could send us their sketches, we could render it as a 3D animation, then we could send that to a 3D printing company, have them print that on a high-quality acetate or whatever, send that to us to paint it. So in theory, it could be from your mind to our brush, the whole model from beginning to end, right. an original figure. That's where this is going, in my opinion, which is awesome. Like, no longer are you you know, trying to figure out how to get the exact fit you want. Now, we can literally, in theory, we have the technology to do anything. You know, yeah. we can make them smarter, faster. We have the technology. <laughs> yeah. It is awesome to see how it's uh, evolving in the industry and seeing how those things are really changing the game. So, yeah. Um, still things to work out. 3D printing isn't perfect, but it's getting pretty close. No, it's definitely so, not perfect. I think it's getting better. It is getting yeah. better. It, there won't be long before we'll be able to print out, I think, high quality figures mm-hmm. in, off of your, you know, your own desk. That's so. pretty neat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I wonder if like the Kickstarter thing this will become kind of the new thing where people will just print their own miniatures yeah and, your you kickstarting know. is buying designs right instead of actual right. models or if you're talented designing it yourself yeah. for that matter um, but anyway if you're interested in something like that we'd love to explore this further so contact us at info at whitemetalgames.com we'd love to explore a concept with you for custom characters custom inquisitors custom death watch watchmasters um, just whatever really I mean we're, we're interested um, I'll, I'll, I'll put a link in this section that talks about our display level characters and uh, you can check them out and see what you like um, okay so what am I working on these days okay so I'm pretty deep into this chaos dwarf army um, it's coming along really well I think it's going to um, I think I'll be done in about a week um, so the turnaround's pretty fast on it um, you know it occurred to me the other day I was trying to add up the number of armies that we paint on an average year I think we're somewhere in the 20s now really because I figure I did about six I think you guys have probably done at least that many each you know probably yeah yeah. so I mean it it occurred to me I was like man where are we at with this so um, the turnaround on that's looking pretty good I've got another army on my desk coming in next the blood knights part two are coming back so the client liked the work we did on the first one he's going to bring back some more Um, John is working on a small storm cast army I say small but it's probably around it's a decent size, but, yeah. Probably around twelve hundred points or something like that. I, I mean, it's, it's actually probably more than that. You really? So probably, yeah. yeah some of those pretty beefy. Right? It's hard for me because I don't because they don't publish the points in the army books. You have to go into the general's compendium to get the points. It's yeah, a real pain in the ass. It is a little bit annoying. You know, I've actually thought about like putting a sticky on all my pages every time I look up the point, just write it on the page, <laughs> um, which essentially kills the value. But <laughs> at least, at least, I'm not double checking with two books. Um, but I'm seeing more and more Age of Sigmar bat reps. In fact, um, Frontline Gaming has been putting out quite a few. Yeah, they're pushing so, it. So. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm actually kind of really glad to see this embraced. 
I love uh, the model. So hopefully, as it picks up, I mean, tournament scene will pick up, and those those are the guys that, in my opinion, are generally looking for commission artists. Yeah, they don't have time to paint their armies, but right. they want to play them. So, yeah. and that's the thing is, you'd rather be painting, I think, as a rule of thumb. I'd rather be pa- playing for sure. <laughs> so, but I mean, you know, you don't want to you don't want to spend the time painting, and that's perfectly okay. You know, I don't I don't want to make a pizza. I buy a pizza. Right. It's really no different. It's just a bigger thing. Like, I don't want to build a car. I buy a car. Like, you know, if you don't want to sit there and paint minis, don't paint the minis. Send them to us. Like, it's perfectly okay to accept the fact that you are a busy professional. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, all right, anyway, so the Chaos Dwarves are coming along. I'm also trying to trying to get back to these Chaos Knights uh, that keep eluding me. They keep getting pushed back on my desk. And I should point out, they're not a client commission. They're a personal thing. Uh, these Imperial Knights? Yeah, they- so essentially with the Imperial Knight Renegade box, you get two Knights, mm-hmm. and one of them is, well, let's be honest, the lesser of the two Knights. Yeah. yeah, you get less options. But it's a perfect opportunity to essentially convert a custom Knight. So um, the Chaos Knight upgrade sprue from Forge World Although, ironically, they don't sell it. You can buy them on, on eBay. Pl- plenty of people sell those. So, essentially, you buy the upgrade sprue, and then you just modify the knight into a Chaos Knight. So, I'll have two of those up for sale uh, in the next month, hopefully. Um, if I can get to them sooner, I will. Uh, maybe I'll take them to the lake house this weekend. But one will be an Iron Warriors theme, and one will be a corn theme. So, popular yeah. themes. Um, uh, so, they'll be ready to go. They won't have all the options of the Deluxe Knights, but they'll have the options for the two base knights. Which I forget what they're called right now. It's the Paladin and the... I forget what the other one's called. The Errant or something. Yeah, maybe Uh, Anyway, so those will be up and available if people want to pick those up. They'll be sample models, so you can essentially pick them up for a steal. um, And then in the future, we'll use those as demo models for moving forward. Uh, But that's something we're hoping to get more into. The Imperial Knights have kind of quieted down the last couple months. Um, Since the release of Imperial Knight Renegade, I think everybody bought their Knights. And now... (laughs) Now they're, they're splurged. Right. Yeah, they're they're supped on nights. They're uh, they're they're full and they need some uh, they need some reprieve. So if you need to get them painted up, send them to us. Email us info@games.com. If you're a chaos player, we have the kits to modify them. And if you don't like the Forge World kit, we have the bits to modify them. So let us know what you're into. We would love to gussy up some nights. I've been pushing for like Oh, Space Wolf Knight for a long time. Yeah, some yeah. of those like custom heads and things mm-hmm. I've seen. The 3D printed kits are really great, but they're really expensive. Are they? There's this one guy, he knows he's got a good product, mm-hmm. because if you add up all of the bits, it costs more than the Knight. Really? Yeah, it's like $140 or something. There's this one guy, he's on Etsy, and he sells like Space Wolf heads, Space Wolf fists, Space Wolf feet. And when you put it all together, it's great, mm-hmm. but it's too much. It's Does way too much yet? money. And he just knows that he's got yeah. he's got the market yeah. cornered. So he's just like, I, I, I can only assume he's kind of like, fuck you, you know, like I'll charge what I want, um, which is fair. It, so yeah. I guess it's... But you don't have to do it that way. We can custom convert it and make it more original in-house. We have the bits. So if you would like to do something like that, just let us know. Um, what else am I working on at the moment? Um, let's see. Uh, Viking. Yeah, so um, we're trying to get more into bat reps, and um, the way we're doing that is we want to have more control over our environment. So essentially, I've hired a carpenter, same guy that did the renovations to our studio, to build two custom tables. Now, he is a longtime Warhammer fan, but he um, is a big fan of... um, He's a big fan of the Riders of Rohan in the Lord of the Rings franchise. So, But he wants to play Warhammer, so the only essentially the Riders of Rohan are there as the Lord of the Rings, in my opinion, the equivalent of their version of Vikings. They're much nicer, mm-hmm. um, 
but if you look at a lot of their their iconography, the way they build their houses, their shields, essentially they're they're raiders. Instead of being waterborne Vikings, they're like they're not pillagers or like you right. know, that kind of thing. But a lot of their stuff is, I think, inspired by Nordic culture, in my opinion. Um, so essentially, it's it's a it's a mishmash. We're going to take some Stormcast Eternal stuff, some Chaos Marauder stuff, and we're going to turn it into kind of a good aligned Marauder army. So he'll play them as Chaos Marauders, but he won't be slaves to any of the Chaos Gods. He'll just play them generically. Okay. So, you know, it's like, um, you know, if you wanted to take, let's say, Space Wolves and kitbash them with Chaos bits, call them Chaos Wolves, you could do that. There's nothing in the rules sure. that prevents it from from happening. So that's what we're, we're doing here, is we're taking some Marauders, we're kitbashing them with some Stormcast stuff, and we're going to create a unique-looking army, which will be fun. And that's tra- it's a trade, basically. He's trading us two tables, custom-made, Built, painted a whole nine war- arcs for an army, which um, I think that works out pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, price for dollar, uh, it's it's almost exact. And with the overage, um, mine's actually I valued mine a little bit higher than he valued his. I'm going to get him to do some some repairs around the house. So it, it kind of works out great. It's a quid pro quo thing. Yeah. So that's coming up in late October. Um, I've got to get that on the docket because the tables are coming in, and he actually just accepted a job out of state, so he'll be he'll be leaving for a while. Uh, and then finally, to round it up, I'm working on some some towel for a client. Um, all big stuff, which I really like. Yeah. It's a, a Vorla, kind of a, it's kind of a Vorla sept inspired army with less red. I think is the best way to put it. Is this the Townar guy too? Yeah, he's got a, he has a Townar suit, and he has two Riptides and one Storm Surge. Man. So, zoot, zoot, zoot. yeah, right, exactly, Zoot Suit Riot. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's about it right now. So um, we're currently booking projects for moving forward in November and December. We are actively looking for projects for the later portion of the year. October's full up, but late November, we're, we definitely have some room on our schedule, and late and all of December, really, we've got room in our schedule. So if you're interested in booking a project with us, you can do so at info at whitemetalgames.com. Uh, you get 3% off if you leave us a review on iTunes as a podcast listener, and, um there's lots of other ways to save money. If you go to our website and look up discounts under the commissions tab, you'll see lots of other ways. Essentially, we want to book you. We want to give you incentives to book. So take a look, explore it, and let us know what you're into. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to jump into um, our service spotlight tonight. We're going to be talking about effects and embellishments, blood, rot, decay, that kind of stuff, and we'll be right back after this brief message. If you're interested in advertising on War Council, let us know. We can be reached at warcouncil at whitemetalgames.com. Rates are extremely competitive, but there are limited slots available, so please contact us soon. Hey guys, welcome back. We're going to jump into Service Spotlight tonight. Um, Tonight we're going to kind of mix it up a little bit for Halloween. We're going to be talking about gory effects, um, ghosts, blood, gore, that kind of stuff, um, stuff that's fun for I, I think horror-themed models. Which, yeah. to be fair, a lot of models are horror-themed. I mean, it's a popular skulls and blood. Skulls and blood. Yeah. And yeah, it's a it's a popular <laughs> genre, if you will. Um, so we're uh, also going to be talking about um, kind of our favorite ways to apply these things. So let's just dive right in. Uh, let's start off with blood. I think that's the best one to start with because it's it's by far the one that's the most popular. I'd say. Yeah. I mean, people putting blood on their weapons, people putting blood on skulls or, or whatever. Bodies, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so let's, uh, just to start, we'll acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of good products on the market. 
Uh, but a lot of them require some learning curve or some user um, experimentation. Yeah. None are, are the stopgap solution for everything. And in fact, every high-level artist I know has their own recipe for blood. Very few of them just default to, to what is out there. Um, so I guess I would start with this. Um, the best explanation for painting blood I ever heard was look at the blood, and if it looks like blood, it is blood. Yeah. That's kind of your starting place. Red paint is not going to work. No. <laughs> you can't just put red paint on something and call it blood. Uh, and l- let's a- examine why that is. Why do you think that is, per se? Um, well, I mean, generally speaking, I mean, the color coming right out of the tube is not, it's just a pigment mm-hmm. at that point. So, I mean, if you're going to match a certain color, you got to make sure its the properties are right and the value of the red is right. And so, blood red is generally like, we'll take GW, blood red was an old paint they used to have. It's now. I think Mephiston red, but it's a bright red, mm-hmm. which you'll never see blood really that color. No, not really. So generally you want something that's darker, deeper color. Um, and there's actually a great tutorial that we linked last year. It's linked again here, um, just going over blood. Um, and the guy in there talks about like... He, Lester he does, Burley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He does the same thing. He actually puts the color of the paint on his finger mm-hmm. so you can see if it actually looks natural or not. And I think that's a really good suggestion. Yeah. Because essentially when it beads up, um, you want to sort of take a look and see, like, does this feel right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, good advice for all painting, really. Yeah. Uh, but in, in Lester's case, um, he used to have a service called, I think, Awesome Paint Job. Now he calls it Lester Burley Miniatures. Although I'm not for sure if he's still active. I haven't seen him upload a new painting tutorial in a while. I think he's taking a life break, uh, which is fine. Uh, but, yeah, in the video, he basically puts some blood on his finger, and he's like, looks like blood to me, and that's yeah. kind of how it works. Um, I have tried to custom mix my own blood before, with modicums of success. Mm-hmm. Before Blood for the Blood God came out, I used to take a deep shade of like a crimson and I would mix it up with a high gloss and then I would kind of use that for blood. And it was okay. Mm-hmm. But it, essentially, like, it, it's not the one-stop solution for everything because let's suppose you don't want it to look like fresh blood. Maybe you want it to look like dried blood. Right. Like it's been on the axe blade for a while and it's dried up and crusted. Well, then you think about the color combinations there and, and how do you get there. Um, so, like, for example, when I think of dried blood, I think of almost, like, black, kind of, like, yeah, deep. Yeah, very deep red. Right, yeah. Some brown, maybe a little purple in there. So it's going to be much darker. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you have, it's, you have to take some experimentation, I mean, depending on the colors you use. But I would mix in, I mean, if you got, you can't really start with a bright red. you got to start with something darker. Mm-hmm. If you want to build it up, then, you know, use a brighter red. But I would, yeah, definitely recommend with a darker red or darker, almost brown brownish red and then go from there and build it up in layers um, depending on how striking or how fresh you want that blood to look yeah so now when we say build it up in layers i think that sometimes people get confused by that but essentially we're talking about building from your darkest color to your lightest color Mm -hmm. and we're talking about building it in steps Um, so a poor man's solution to this might be um, if you find the three colors your mid-tone your shadow and your highlight color yeah then you start with your dark color Mix in a little bit of your mid-tone, let's say 50-50 mix. Use that as your highlight, then go to the next, the direct color, then highlight up again from the mid-tone to the highlight, et cetera, et cetera. So in three colors, you should have five different combinations at a minimum. Yeah. You know, because you could mix up f- different variations, three to one part, mm-hmm. two to one part. Yeah, smoother yeah. transitions. Right. The more, the more layers, the, more, the smoother the transition as a rule of thumb. Um, now, uh, Army Painter recently put out a product, a brand-new product, I think, which is their equivalent of Blood for the Blood God. Okay. Uh, and they call it, I think this Army Planer Blood Effect, or Blood 
wet blood or something like that, um, which is, uh, it looks to be a good product. I think it's going to run into the same gambit that um, GW's Blood for the Blood God is, which is, okay. it's a good, short, quick solution. Yeah. Like, I have no problem with it. I just recently painted up a Scarbrand model. One of the things I like about Blood for the Blood God is on his base in particular, um, the client wanted the blood to sort of basically be all over the base. It was a flat base, so I couldn't pool it the way I would want to in a, in a uh, uh, inclined base. So essentially, Blood for the Blood God has such a strong binder. It's so tacky, like sticky, yeah. that it really just sticks to anywhere you put it. So you can essentially pool it on the base, and um, you could, in theory, make like rivers of blood or streams of blood or trails of it or whatever, um, which you won't necessarily get with paint straight out of the bottle. No. Because you're going to want to thin it, and water's going to make it too runny. So yeah, you got to... Blood for the Blood God is definitely an easy transition. Um, now, my fear, the thing I always have a problem with, with blood is it's easy to get carried away and just kind yeah. of put it everywhere. Right. So you got to be very careful. You don't want to just go crazy with it. Um, Less is more. Yeah. Yeah. Generally speaking. You can always add more, to. I feel like that's a Duncan line right there. You can always add more if you want to from GW, <laughs> the guy who paints all the time. Um, well, he's not wrong. He's not. Uh, yeah, I actually have to remind myself about that with dry brushing all the time. Because mm-hmm. I always start low because I can always add paint. Right. But once the paint's on there, man, you cannot get it off. Yeah, you're done. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, what else can we say? Um, you can always thin your, your paints down. You can thin your blood down if you want it to be more watery. Mm-hmm. If you want to, with blood for the blood god, you don't have to use it straight out of the bottle. You can darken it down. Yeah, you can Experiment. Add your own pigments. Yeah, yeah, add your own pigments, add your own inks to it, add your own colors. Um, you could add Lamy and medium to it or any, really any, I say Lamy and medium like I'm a rep for GW. Yeah. Really any mixing medium would be fine. Uh, P3 makes their own version. I forget what they call theirs. I think it's called mixing medium. Um, but any clear matte medium is, is really fine. Um, uh, one thing I will point out since you mentioned Duncan is that he has a really good advice, which is when you're going to put it on a blade or something, which is I would say the second place we see it often, uh, he, he employs a flicking motion, which I think is great. Because yeah. it essentially it mimics, I guess, what you might call like splatter. Splatter, yeah. yeah. So you know, if if you flick it on the edge of the blade, you'll essentially get a dragged effect, which looks good. And by flick it, I simply mean think about the way the blade would cut and apply the paint from that direction, because then naturally the the paint will accumulate more at the blade tip and less on the the flat of the blade, where it, it, it would naturally not accumulate. Mm-hmm. Um, on Obviously on the deeper blades like a, an axe or a sickle, this is going to work better. But on a short blade, you can still make that work. Just use smaller strokes. I right. mean. Um, so yeah, I think it's great. Um, I guess we could talk about splatter real quick. Um, my favorite splatter technique, um, when we're talking about splattering blood, you think about like, you know, I guess when you think about like uh, on a movie where a guy gets his throat cut mm-hmm. and it goes goes everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, so if you want to mimic something like that one solution that i have for that is just simply flicking your brush get a nice stiff bristled brush load it up with some paint and then flick it um, you can also do this with your airbrush by loading up a brush and then putting the airbrush directly behind the actual loaded paintbrush and then using a short quick burst of air at a high psi maybe 30 35 mm-hmm. uh, and that will create a splatter like effect yeah. but be warned it is hard to control. Yeah, you have to be a little... Start with low air pressure if you're going to do that yeah. and, and see how that works. But test and experiment on a flat piece of paper first. Yeah. That's you know, don't don't test on your model. So I've actually never done that with blood, but uh, we've done like the uh, a lot of the um, 
Stormcast guys have done that with like the galaxies. Mm-hmm. It's great for star effects. Yeah, yeah. that starry. Well, and again, what I would say for that too is that it's great with star effects at low levels, but as you get to higher levels, you have to control it more. So you have yeah. to be you have to be more sparing with it. For sure. Uh, but yeah, so that's those are our tips for blood for this episode for right now. If we think if you have any tips, we'd love to hear them. But essentially, don't be afraid to experiment. Mixing mediums into it is perfectly fine. Remember that dark blood is going to look darker, so darken it. Dried blood, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Don't you know? Bottled blood is not a one-stop solution for everything. Um, essentially, you, you still have to experiment with it. Um, and um, actually, Philip and I were talking about this off-air. If you find the blood effects are too glossy, mount them down. Yeah. Like, if you don't like the gloss content in the blood effects, apply the blood, let it dry, and then simply go over it with a quick matte varnish, like a, a brushed-on matte varnish. It'll go away. Like, it'll just look like blood without the yeah. gloss. It'll be fine. It's perfect for, like, dried-out blood because you're gonna it's going to matte down everything. Yeah. Even if it's on a shiny metal blade, it'll yeah. matte down that blade. Just yeah, which is, so. which is great. Yeah, that's... So that's another good tip. Use matte, matte medium. Okay, so let's move on to other stuff. How about rotten filth and decay? I'm going to lump all these together. Yes. Um, again, we'll start with bottled solutions. GW does make their own bottled solution. They call it, um, it's not typhus corrosion. What's the other one called? Uh, they've got, well, they have the Rise of Rust for Rust Effect. They also have a Nurgle's Rot. Which is that's the one, like Nurgle's Rot. Yeah. Have you, have you experimented with that? I've used that. Yeah. yeah. What do you think it's, of it? Um, it's not bad. I, I like it a lot. I use it on an actual Nurgle model. Yeah. I've never actually found a use for it outside of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it works really well. So, I mean, it definitely has What I like about it, again, is the binders. Mm-hmm. Like, it really clings to wherever you put it in. Mm-hmm. And it's got a weird consistency. It's kind of thin, but the pigments are strong. So, it essentially collects very, very well. It doesn't tint as much as, like, a glaze does. That's why I kind of bring this up. I wouldn't. I wouldn't classify it really as a glaze. Not it's at it's, all. it's no, an effect. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of it's semi-translucent, so you can see it a little yeah. bit through a lot of these different effect paints. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely not something you would glaze on. Right. You would build it up like it's yeah, like it's. Well, you just build it up, mm-hmm. so it'd be like a big pile or puddle or something. Like that. And it does stack well. Mm-hmm. You can essentially build it up over several layers, and the, the newer pigments will be brighter and stronger over the older pigments, that kind of thing. Um, one thing I've had really good luck with so far is because it's such a green medium, um, the, it contrasts naturally with something like purple or red or, or, or something in that color wheel. So um, what I do with Nurgle is I'll start with like a, a deep, for their guts and intestines, I'll start with like a deep, uh, purple or, or warlord purple kind of color, build it up to like a pinkish, and then I'll apply the um, the effect right on top, the uh, the Nurgle rot, and so you get this really nice contrasting purple green color, which pops really well. Nice. Um, who cares if guts are actually purple? It doesn't really matter. That makes sense. Looks pretty good. <laughs> um, so I'm a big fan of that. It's a nice, quick, yeah. simple solution. Plus, the purple in the guts contrasts nicely with. Every Nurgle color, really. Yeah. Whether you do your yeah, plague bears and, and right, yeah. pale flesh, you use them in yellow flesh, green flesh, even black. I mean, it really contrasts really, really well, and it's a nice bright pigment. Um, so I love that. Um, when we talk about filth, I guess you know, I would carry that through. We're not going to talk about like like fecal matter, <laughs> right? No. But I will talk about some of the mediums they have, like typhus corrosion, is, is kind of my favorite. Yeah. It's this it weird. Has a little bit of dirt. Mixed in with it. Is that, is that yeah. how, really? When it dries out, you'll see there's little, like, flakes of sand in there. So they're selling me dirt. Yeah, essentially. That. That's yeah. pretty funny. But it's a great material. I mm-hmm. mean, it looks perfect for anything that's, any sort of metal areas that have maybe, like, worn out or yeah. something, like, not quite rusted, but, yeah. Yeah. I, the only thing I don't like about it is I don't like how it kind of stains areas. Like, essentially, it's not like a wash. It's more like a, I mean, it is an effect. It, essentially, it leaves a really 
grimy surface texture, which sounds a little like complaining that it does what it's supposed to do. <laughs> but I guess my point is that it's harder. It's hard to do anything with it after it's on there. Like you can't yeah. really dry brush You'd it per se. To, yeah. and, it, it's a final effect, and it's yeah. sort of a. You know, That's a good way to put it. It's a final effect. Yeah. If you want, you can't go back. You'd have to yeah. strip the model right. to get it off. So. so just be wary of it mm-hmm. and use it sparingly and use it exactly where you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think overall it's a really good model or uh, material. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had this thing happen recently. It was kind of an accident that I had a bottle of Army Painter Strong Tone. And normally I think the Army Painter products are amazing, I think yeah. they're really, really good. Um, some of their paints are misses for me, but most of them are great. In this particular case, though, I had a bottle of Army Painter Strong Tone. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was a bad batch or something, but the binders in the bottle kind of broke down, so I've got all of this weird, I guess sediment's the best way to put it. Hmm. Like the pigments are kind of like, they're just everywhere. Like if I pour it out, I don't get an even stain. I get like sediment in the bottle. It's almost like sand is collected or something. And I thought it was a total loss until I was painting some ruins the other day on this Townar's base, and they're kind of a brown base. So I simply just took it and applied it kind of like a poor man's typhus corrosion, and it worked great. Like, it essentially, it allowed the sediment to settle on top, which was kind of exactly what I was hoping it would do. So even if your bottles break down, they're not necessarily a loss. You just have to use them more creatively. Yeah. Um, what about Rise's Rust? I actually haven't used that before. Uh, Rise's Rust is it's a good paint. Um, it's a solid. It, so it's an orange. It's a strong orange. It's mm-hmm. very strong. So I would always recommend thinning it. Actually, it's not like typhus or anything where there's like other material mixed in. It's a pure pigment, mm-hmm. um, and it's actually kind of thick. So um, I would always recommend thinning it down, applying it almost like a wash in areas and building it up as needed. Mm-hmm. But um, it's a great, great color, great tone. So. I am um, Reaper makes their own version of that called Orange Rust, and then Vallejo makes a version of that called, I think it's either Orange Rust or it's, um, they, they make a rust color. Okay. A lot of companies make their own versions of it, mm-hmm. um, but it's a, it's I, in my opinion, it's a go-to color in your arsenal. Like sure. you have to have some sort of rusty color like that. At the very least, if you're going to be, and this is kind of a trick that I've learned, if you're building up to a yellow. The pigments in these rusty oranges are so strong. Most of the time, orange I think is kind of a crap color. Like I'm not gonna like I'm not that it's impressed with the pigments. With. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's hard to work with, but the pigments in these rust oranges is so strong that um, you can really lay it down almost as a midtone and build your yellows off of it. Um, you can use it as kind of like a backing color. Now you may argue that the the, the color's wrong for yellow like rusty has kind of got a hint of brown or ochre in it it's not exactly the yellow you want to build to um what i would say is experiment um i've experimented and found it to be pretty great um you know because essentially when you're building up yellow i can say this with certainty because i recently worked on this chaos dwarf army uh getting up to that yellow took me like seven layers or something a stupid number of layers a crazy number of layers yeah um so, you know, and people talk about this all the time, which colors are hard to work with. Yellow is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't, it's not as easy as, like, let's say, blue, <laughs> right. where, the, where the pigments are richer, the base is stronger. Right, right. Um, it's l- just easier to build up. You don't need five layers of the same color right. just to get that solid color. So I'll take any trick I can, yeah. and orange rust is definitely a trick I've learned. Okay. At, at, least for, at least for things that you don't mind justifying rust. Mm-hmm. Like if I was going to paint, like, Bad Moon's Orcs. No, no doubt. No doubt, I would start with an orange rust. Right. You know, I like what you mentioned earlier, just about uh, rust having other colors. It's not just a pure color. I think a lot of times we, with any of these effects, 
it's easy to just you know take it out of the bottle and apply it but mm-hmm. you should actually keep in mind like look at i mean we've got google like look up images of rusted out vehicles like see the different variation in colors um and apply like one of the great ways to do a rust effect is to use a sponge mm-hmm. um so just take a break off a little piece of sponge dab it in the paint and just gently apply it um and go back over with other colors yeah you can go back in with a darker brown to help you know darken in some areas you can highlight it with a uh, chipped metal so yeah. you can use a little bit of a bolt like a bulk on metal or whatever metallic paint you use um, and so those are ways to build up the layers and uh, make it look more natural i was thinking about this the other day and we're going to talk about it more on the next episode when we talk about color theory but i'll, I'll briefly kind of share my thoughts now because we're kind of in that topic um i was thinking about like um, um when you eat a good a good meal um as you get older, your, your taste buds get more, more defined, mm-hmm. and essentially they can pick up more flavors. Like you could taste, like let's say, a glass of wine, and you can pick up all these different – well, wine's bad because people are, are, are really picky about snobby. their wines. But let's – yeah, snobby is a better word. But like, let's say, for example, I eat like um, uh, a BLT. We had BLTs last night. It's one of our favorite meals. Mm-hmm. The reason it's a, it's a favorite meal of ours is because there's so many different flavors and textures in the meal, yet it's very, very simple. So I, I point this out because when you look at a model – Brandon from GMM actually really summed this up for me a few months ago when he said that when you look at a model, you don't want it to be easy to reverse engineer. You want it to be something that it's it's harder to reverse engineer. There's more layers to it. And essentially, when you think about building up a model, you build up layers, you build up the effects. The more uh, rich and deep and the more colors that are on a model, not necessarily like clown car colors, but the more work that's gone into it, the more your brain kind of absorbs. It's kind of like firing off klaxons and, and, and stuff in your brain. It's like it lights up the synapses. So what I mean by that is let's say if I look at a flat blue model, it's boring. My brain analyzes it in one second. But if I've highlighted that blue up three or four times, now there's lots of different richness to the colors. So there's deep blue in the shadows, and there's a, a middle blue on the on the flat plates and there's a highlighted blue on the edges and so now our brain is digesting that kind of like a, a good meal and all of those klaxons and stuff are firing and so all of in my opinion that's what you want you want those colors that are rich they're not flat you want the final model to have a lot of variation and stuff like that and rust is a great way to get there because essentially like you said you're talking about not only the flat model itself, like let's say it's a metal panel, now you've got rust going on, oxidation. Right. We could add other effects to that, like weathering or whatever. So now when you look at that, your brain has four or five things to analyze. That's the way a model should be. Like it should have lots going on so that your brain has to pick it apart like a feast, really. You know, it can't decide where to start. Uh, at least that's that's recently with, with kind of what I've been thinking. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorry, got my, now my brain is, the klaxons are not firing. Yeah. Now they're all over the place. But that, that's how you get the natural effect, is by building up the different colors. And it's it can go beyond, I mean, just starting with a darker blue, working up to a bright blue. I can sure. even go into adding other colors and tones to emphasize the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a, that's, well, we'll save that for next next. Yeah, time. save it for next time. Um, all right, before we get out of this entirely, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, so postules. I want to share something that I kind of learned from Blue Table, uh, Blue Table Painting. I'll give them some credit here. Um, so uh, a, a long time ago, they had an artist. I don't know if it's a long time ago, maybe a year or two ago. They had an artist on their conversion team called Brig, and he did a really good job of stuff. And one of the things that he brought, every new artist brought something new to the table. One of the things he did was when he was working on Nurgle models, he would take small BBs, and uh, essentially he would put those somewhere on the model and build up green stuff around them 
or specifically he would build up green stuff and then lump a couple of those in there to form boils or postules. Okay. So when you think of postules, I think of like a pimple about to pop or something like that, um, which is very nurgly. So that's going to be a kind of a quick tip for you guys right now. If you're looking to nurgle file models and give them postules or boils, you don't even necessarily have to use a BB because that might be too big. Just take a small, teeny ball of green stuff. And by tiny, I mean the smaller the better. Let them dry. Make a small stack of them, let's say 20 or so. And then anytime you want to do a postural, just take one of those and lump it on. Uh, yeah. one, I, I've seen another variation of that uh, that was really cool. I haven't actually tried it yet, but that guy used silicon balls, like the ones that you find in those packets that are sent with shipping. Oh, yeah. So uh, he would basically just tear open the packet, and since they're already clear, mm-hmm. he would just apply Nargle's rot or some sort of effect on top of it. That's so and smart. And they're already see-through, so it absorbs that color. You see that semi-translucent. So now I wish I'd have been saving all those for years. Yeah, yeah. That was a uh, technique that I thought was interesting. You know, someone could be really smart, and they could essentially figure out where they get those balls and just sell them in their own packages and call them postules, not silicone balls. Yeah. Make a tidy earning at that. That's pretty much. Yeah. Um, So that's really cool. That's a nice tip. Um, Okay, let's move away from um, filth and rot decay, and let's jump into ghosts for a second. Spooky ghosts. So um, when I think of ghosts, I think of ethereal effects. Um, the first color that always comes to my mind is green, yeah. but um, blue is also, I think, a good contender for the crown. Um, do you? Um, last year, around this time, I released my kind of four-step recipe for ghosts. I'll reinstitute it here, but before, it's not all about me. Do you have uh, any sort of uh, tips or suggestions for painting ghosts or ethereal? Uh, and by ethereal, guys, or if you're if you're not totally geeked out, what I mean is like ghostly, right. not of this world, semi-transparent, semi-translucent, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I always employed the, there's a technique that GW used that I thought was great, um, and basically you start off with a base of like a pale, almost like a blue, light gray, pale, bluish gray. Okay. Um, and from there you can use a lot of different you can use washes you can use um, they would actually use nicolite oxide which is another one of their effects and paints and it gives that impression that you've got this green greenish glow inside or within and it's sort of fading into that whitish gray blue um, so that's a quick and easy way uh, that I've always kind of used for my own stuff that's interesting I wouldn't have considered nicolite oxide to be useful for that but that's actually really clever yeah so you start with like a gray, blue-gray base, and then you use that as almost like, because the pigments are so rich and strong, yeah. that's going to settle into the cracks almost like, kind of like a wash, but not dark. Pretty much, yeah. That's really clever. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That I'd, like, I'd, like to see it. I'd, like to, I'd like to see that. I'd like to take a look yeah. at how they do that. That's really cool. Um, well, speaking of GW, they also had a tutorial back in the day for how to do Legion of the Damned, and the way they basically did that is they started with a dark, I don't even say a dark green, I'd say a mid-tone green. They would wash that down with like a deep green, and then they would build that up slightly through different layers, usually like a mid-tone yellow up to like a, a pale green-white. And uh, essentially they'd apply some sort of like final wash to it. And the effect you get is essentially all green, a highlighted green model from light to dark. But the thing is, is that even though obviously that's just a green model, contextually we have associated green with ghostly. Yeah. I don't know why, maybe because artists on TV shows or movies have given that to us, but because of that, we've all sort of universally decided, oh, ghosts are green, um, or blue, depending on, on how you look at it. But essentially, it's not really anything special. All you're doing is you're just assigning color values that we have decided are the right values for ghosts. 
Um, so if you look at like the recent Ghostbusters remake, which I didn't watch, but I'm sure it was fine. Uh, but you know, the only thing that makes those things not just, you know, because they're ethereal and they're see-through, which obviously we can't do in miniatures, but the colors there are basically shades of blue or shades of green. So that's all you're really doing. So for me, what I like to do is I like to start with like a really, really deep, like a purple, almost like a deep bruise. And I like to work it up through shades of blue green, like teals. So I work it up to like a kind of a transparent blue green. And then I work it up to like an opaque aqua green, which is a very, very green blue. Yeah. You know, it's almost more green than blue. Uh, And then I'll add a little dash of white to highlight it up as a final highlight. And the effect you get there basically is you get, you know, purple being almost a very, very deep blue. You kind of get the, the, the run of the, the litter there. And I actually just did it on a Morngul for the Warhammer. Uh, Forge World makes this really weird model called a Morngul, which is almost like a giant ghost. It's so oh, big yeah, yeah. that it's holding a horse down with its hand. And yeah, the bottom yeah. half of its body has been like torn to, to shit. It's like yeah, not it doesn't even, even have, doesn't even have a lower body. A waist. Yeah. It. It's actually, um, not to get into meta, but it's actually a it's amazing in game. Like it's a really good model. Yeah. Um, and I don't think people field them very much because frankly, they're hard to get They're You know, you either have to buy them directly from GW or you have to buy them from a recaster, um, which I won't say, which I did, but I will say that it's a quality looking model. Uh, and that, um, easy to paint. I love it. I'm a big fan. So I'll, I'll snap a picture of that, put that in the episode and people can see it. It's interesting. You start with a dark color. I usually, I've always seen people start with like a bright, like almost Mm -hmm. white and actually tone it down as opposed to really yeah huh as opposed to building up from a darker base you know i don't i don't know why uh you see that's interesting um I, I hadn't really thought about that but one of the things i've been thinking about recently um dennis about three weeks ago did a set of silver tower miniatures and we both did them for two different clients i did a set for the game store event horizon games locally he did a set for a private client we both were trying to match the box art. That was both of our goals. His set and my set are so drastically different. <laughs> and it, it just has, it's recently made me think about how we interpret things, how our brain can both see the same thing and interpret it totally differently. Yeah. Um, like, I, I look at that set, and I looked at his set, and I was like, his set's really pastel. Now, Dennis favors pastels, so it's, uh, and by that I just mean his color choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I, I don't, I don't generally tend to, to, to wheel that way. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with either option. Both options have perfectly good use. But I don't know. I don't know why I started painting them that way. I guess maybe I just got it drilled into me early. You build from dark to light, not the other way around. Yeah. Although you can drill. You can go the other way, obviously. I don't know. That's interesting. I'm still of the camp that I prime 90% of my stuff black, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, not because I don't think gray is viable. It creates a brighter surface. But I think I would rather work up to that with a richer shadow than start there and have to work down. I don't know. For some reason, I feel like it's reverse. I think it depends on colors. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned yellow earlier, having to build a lot of layers. The Building v- yellow off black is a nightmare. Yeah, you can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> it starts off green. You can, but it's a real pain. Well, the easiest thing is to actually start from <laughs> Seven white. layers later. Yeah. yeah. But if you do it with like a white, yeah. you can get it in one coat. Yeah. That's, that's so efficiency-wise. Like, yeah. There are certain colors that benefit from a brighter base coat. Yeah. Um, GW actually had this thing in a book years ago where they would start with a white model and they would wash them down with a yellow wash, and that's how they got their yellow. And it was perfect. Yeah. It was like, holy it's shit, instant fast. yellow. Yeah. yeah. So, very cool. 
Uh, okay, well, I think we've covered, you know, basically everything I wanted to cover for this section. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump back in with our interview with Reaper Brian. We're going to talk to Reaper Miniatures about all things Reaper, and uh, we'll be right back after this. Need a model assembled or painted but no money to spare? White Metal Games is now offering trade-ins. Send us pictures of your old models, bits, boxes, even new kits. Make us an offer we can't refuse. Don't like negotiating and haggling? White Metal Games also offers consignment services. You can send us your old models, books, games to sell. We sell them through our eBay store, and you pocket 55% of the sales price. You don't have to worry about eBay fees, PayPal fees, shipping fees. There's no crazy percentages, just easy money. Contact us at info at whitemetalgames.com today. Hey guys, welcome back. Um, we're going to dive right in tonight. We have a special interview tonight. We have Reaper Brian from Reaper Miniatures Incorporated with us uh, on the phone tonight. Um, Reaper, as you guys well know, is, uh, in my opinion, the largest independent manufacturer of RPG miniatures in the whole world. Um, and they started with Humble Origins, and we're going to learn more about the company that we all know and love um, and find out more about uh, how the gears and the machine work, how they press out so many miniatures each year that we love, and, and find out more about it. So, Reaper, Brian, thank you. To, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, um, Reaper, Brian, just so that people know, what is your position in the company, and um, how, did you, how did you come to work for them? Uh, so I'm a uh, community management, uh, public relations. I'm also working in IT. Uh, and wow, you wear many hats. I do. Uh, well, we're a small company. We have less than 30 employees, so most of us wear multiple hats. And over the years I've been here, I've been a shipping manager, production manager, casting manager, uh, and I, I started in the mailroom. That traditional story of started in the mailroom and worked my way up gradually. So, so okay, so you, so you started at the bottom, worked your way up. Uh-huh. Uh, and now, uh, you say, now you say there's only 30 employees of that company, but that's that's mind-boggling to me uh, because I think about how many miniatures I just order from you guys every year, let alone at local game stores and that kind of thing. So you're saying 30 people keep the whole ship running? Absolutely, yeah. That's amazing. So like, there's you know in the factory in the, in the warehouse where you guys are packaging up and you're casting stuff, 30 people in and out every day. Yeah, and that includes. Uh, the managers and the sales staff and uh, That's so incredible. all of that. Yeah. I would have thought there was so many more than that. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of Reaper. Um, I know that it started uh, small. Uh, it started as a garage company, correct? Like just out of somebody's uh, private private home? Yeah, uh, the brothers, Ed and Dave Pugh, um, they started uh, Reaper in their garage when they were doing a historical World War II airplane dogfighting game. And they couldn't find the models of planes that were their favorites from that era. So they learned how to uh, sculpt and create their own, and they learned from a friend who knew how to spin cast, how to make their own copies of the models. So they started producing airplanes for this game, and along the way they went, well, wait a minute, if we know how to do this, you know, we also play this D&D game on weekends, and, and let's, let's make minis for our characters. And they started doing that, and along the way they met other people in the industry, and before you knew it, they had a company. Okay, so that's that's a lot of information to take in. Let's break that down a little bit. Sure. So when they started just manufacturing these planes, how were the first models manufactured? Was it uh, handcrafted? Was it made out of, like, PVC pipe? Was it, like, uh, sculpted? Um, how did these guys first... Because just because most of us want to do something like that, it does require, uh, you know, um, a practiced hand to be able to build anything. It requires a real creative flair. Yeah. 
Well, luckily, the, the industry is pretty good about, like, if you go to a convention and you meet a sculptor, they're usually pretty good about showing you how they do things. Sure. So they were able to go and learn uh, how to build an armature out of twisted wire, um, how to apply the green stuff, and how to move it around. And so, so these originals back in the day would have been made out of the, the same basic stuff that we still use today, uh, green putty, brown putty, or gray putty, and uh, some twisted wire or brass rod armature. So they started out just like that, and I'm guessing um, they either learned to sculpt themselves or they hired a few people that were sculptors, maybe, just to kind of get the ball rolling? Yeah, Ed, Ed learned to sculpt, and actually in the early days of Dark Heaven, I think it's been, oh, at least ten years since Ed's had a new model sculpted himself, because he's, he's, he's the CEO now, and he's busy administrating this this company. Um, but back in the early days, he did a lot uh, of, this, of the original sculpting for us, too, to help wow. fill in in a pinch. So he kind of worked from the ground up, too, uh-huh. basically. Um, so have you been with him since the very beginning? Uh, no, I've only been with the company for 13 years. Okay, great. And um, we are celebrating our 25th anniversary um, in 2017. And actually, we've got a lot of promotional stuff planned that I can't really share the details of right now. Okay, uh, sure. But for 2017, we'll be doing a, a 25th birthday party that's going to be close to an all-year kind of thing. Nice. So, um, uh, how many, so you say you're 25 years in now, um, a big party plan, of course, how many figures would you say are currently being produced by Reaper from 25 years to now? Um, still in production is a number around 4,000. Jesus Christ. Uh, That's amazing. So there's 4,000 different miniatures I can buy on the site today. Uh, roughly, roughly. Wow. Uh, there's there's wow. almost 2,000 in Dark Heaven, and then you add in the Pathfinder, the Warlord, the Cav, uh, Savage Worlds, uh, Chronoscope, uh, sure. Master Series minis, uh, the various box sets, special edition figures we've come out with, things like that. Do you guys maintain the old mold? So if you ever want to do like a, a re-release of a certain figure that's now out of production, assuming you you know maintain the rights to produce the figure, that you could do that? Like, uh, I don't know, like if you wanted to do a re-release of a Sophie figure from like, let's say 20 years ago that hasn't been produced in, in tw- two decades. We could. Yeah. Uh, we, we keep the molds uh, for as long as those will last. Now, we use black rubber molds, and they're vulcanized, okay. uh, so sure. they do eventually wear out with both heat and time. Sure. And, it turns out that 25 years is a long time, and the spin casting process does apply a lot of heat. Sure. So we do more or less continually have to remake and update the old molds. Um, so I've heard, and you can tell me if I'm right about this, I've heard from different people that molds only actually last for about 20-so castings before they're essentially kind of not as pristine as they could be. Is that true, or do molds so last longer? That, that's very true with resin molds, which are made okay. out of a softer, um, almost a silicon-like material. And, sure. and sometimes it actually is silicon, and sometimes it's another material that basically has the same uh, consistency. Um, with us, because we're doing metal miniatures, we use uh, a vulcanized rubber that is more or less has the same feel as what would be on the bottom of your shoes or on your sure. uh, car tires. Sure. Um, and those molds will last for roughly a thousand spins, as a as a rule of thumb. Um, but that can vary depending on the the size of the piece. If it's really large, uh-huh. that that chunk of metal will then hold that heat for a lot longer because rubber, it turns out, is a fantastic insulator. Um, <laughs> and the heat will cause all of the natural oils in the rubber to dry out, and it'll degrade the rubber very very quickly, uh, dry and cracked and brittle. Um, 
Alternatively, if we have a very, very spiky piece, something with a lot of sharp, um, and the technical term here I'm going to use is sticky outy bits, (laughs) those sticky outy when you go to pull the piece from the mold, will rub up against the mold over and over in a slicing motion, and sure. eventually they will tear and cut through, and so you'll you'll have large chunks of rubber coming out. But that happens, again, with, with the more sticky-outy figures. Um, so a, a small, fairly simple, roundish figure, like, like maybe a, a pig or a donkey or something, with not a lot of sharp things sticking out, that mold might last maybe 1,500 spins, but a sharp, spiky, angry dwarf with, you know, spiked hair going everywhere and spikes on his armor, he might only last two or three hundred spins. Wow. So uh, I'm, I'm noticing, I have a question about your, how your process works. Is it, sure. do you guys, uh, with the metal parts, do you guys do it underwater or, or do you do it like a forge where you, you cast the mold and then when you pull the mold out, you, you dip it in water? <laughs> uh, water cooling is not necessary for tin. Uh, tin has a freezing point of around 450 degrees, uh, and, uh, and as, as such, its melting point is also roughly 450 degrees. Um, so we, we use a, a, a crucible that cooks the tin up to about 700, because you want it to stay liquid for several minutes. Sure. Um, we pour it directly into the mold, which is spinning inside of a centrifugal spin caster, mm-hmm. um, and that centrifuge helps uh, eliminate the air bubbles and pockets within the figures and also helps make sure that the metal has pressure behind it the, the, the force of the centrifuge will force it into all the little nooks and crannies so we're not, we don't have to put it in a pressured environment um, and then it will actually just air cool over the period of somewhere between 30 seconds and 5 minutes depending on the size of the piece um, and it, it once it air cools to about 400 degrees um, you can pop that mold open and take the pieces out. See, that's interesting because I've heard different people talk about pressure molds versus spin spin casting and the advantages and that sort of thing. So it's neat to know that Reaper is still using the spin casting method as opposed to pressure molding. We do have a resin outfit that uses the the pressure molding. Um, and by the by resin outfit, do you mean the bones line or? No, no, the bones are an injection molded plastic, which is an entirely separate uh, uh, oh, okay. function. Now, we're, we're setting up a resin shop. We do a lot of our masters in resin uh, for our 3D printing process. Um, a 3D model that comes off a 3D printer uh, is too delicate to survive the process of being vulcanized. Sure. So if we tried to make a vulcanized rubber mold off of that 3D model, we'd destroy it. Yes. So we take a 3D print, we make a resin mold of it, and that resin piece goes into our, uh, our vulcanized rubber, and we can vulcanize the resin, and it will survive. Um, what kind of needle do you use for your uh, 3D printed models? Um, we actually contract out the 3D print to another company um, because the the commercially available 3D printers right now do not have the resolution that we need, um, and the the ones that do cost in in the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of dollars range. So we have not acquired a 3D printer of that caliber ourselves. Yeah, and I, I was—I actually didn't even think that Reaper was. I, I mean, obviously, in a in any sort of scenario like this with three D three D printers coming up on the market, 
are, is Reaper at all, you know, are you guys getting into that market? It sounds like you might be dipping your toes into it. Or is Reaper concerned about that at all? Because I, I agree with you 100%. We do a lot of painting. We've painted a lot of 3D figures. Even the highest-end 3D figures we've seen, which are manufactured on those very expensive printers, still just do not have, like you said, the resolution or the fineness that you get out of a traditionally casted model. Um, so I'm not worried about it at all, but I also don't own one of the largest miniature manufacturers in the world. So what do you guys, how do you feel about 3D printers? Um, I think right now they're, they're a fun curiosity. I'm sure. very interested to see where the technology goes. Because like I said, uh, at this point, I'd say about 40% of the models we come out with per year uh, for the last two years have been 3D printed. Um, three, three, you know, the, the sculptor did them on the, the 3D sculpt, and then we had a 3D print, and then we, we went through our arcane process and turned it into a real mini. Um, so, so it's definitely a technology. Is like a mock-up or something? What's that? Is the 3D print like a mock-up or something? Or No, we, we just have to use that 3D print uh, in a different process, like I described, to turn it into a resin before we can turn it into metal. Okay, I see. Um, but so... we've, we've embraced the 3D printing. We've got uh, three... Let me count. Yeah, three full-time sculptors who are uh, three sculpting. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, my my no, words are failing me. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. <sighs> what well, is the actually, word? You're you're actually getting me into my next question, and okay. I think you've already kind of answered it. Is that you said so? There's three full-time sculptors in house. Well, no, I, we have one full-time sculptor in-house. I'm thinking we have uh, three contract sculptors. Sorry, okay. that's the so, word I was going for. So just if, four total sculptors. How many new figures per year are you guys developing, putting out okay. there? We're, we have to back up a little bit. Sure, sure. Three of our contract sculptors only work in 3D. Okay. Our one staff full-time sculptor still does traditional, uh, traditional uh, hand sculpting, sculpting. With, okay. with resin and, and putty. And he also does uh, 3D sculpting, uh, okay. so he's he's very versatile. He can do whichever. Uh, and then we have uh, four other sculptors who still work in the traditional uh, hand sculpting method. Okay, so split up kind of fifty fifty basically. Yeah. Okay, great. So how between the staff of, of those eight people using various methods to get to the final figure, um, and with four thousand models currently in production, how many models is Reaper adding every year? versus the ones they're taking away, and that kind of thing. Well, it, it fluctuates. Um, it has been as high as 200 new models a year wow. uh, in the past, and um, our Bones production, because we were, we were able to kickstart uh, through Kickstarter, uh, 300 or so Bones models at a time, that throws sure. off the numbers. So ignoring that completely, uh, we, we right now are only doing about eight new models a month, Okay. Um, so I'd say we're adding about 50 or so models to the range every year. Uh, wow. And next year, that is probably going to go up a little bit. Okay. And how many figures get discontinued each year? Uh, as many as we produce there? as many as we produce that year, uh-huh. uh, with the exception of the Bones range, which that has its whole, whole different set of logistics behind it. Okay. But if we come out with 50 models in metal, then we cancel 50 models in metal. And if we come out with 200, oh, okay. then we cancel 200. So you try to stay at that 4,000 mark? Yeah. Okay, great. And that's probably because, like, over growing pains and just the life of the company, you guys have figured out, like, this is where we're comfortable at right now. This is what we can continue to produce with regular, uh, you know, to regularly get them out to the distributors, that kind of thing. 
Right. Ease of production is one thing. Uh, ease of carrier on the, the retailer side is another. If the sure. retailer was expected to have every single model we'd ever produced, right. um, that would just you know, overwhelm their shelves, ultimately. Sure, sure. Uh, so, so we make it easy by keeping the ranges fairly small and compact and saying, these are the most popular of, of, of the last three years. These are the most popular 400 Dark Heaven models. They're the only ones that we will work through distribution with. So if you want to get the other ones, you can order them directly on our website. If you're a retailer, they can still come to us and get them so the retailer can still stock them. But the distribution uh, will only have these 400 Dark Heaven figures. And next year it'll be a different subset where probably 350 or so of those 400 are the same, and then the new 50 get tacked in. And the, the worst-selling 50 of that 400 fall out. Okay. Um, so... Let's talk about Reaper Bones for a minute because we're on that. I think that Reaper Bones was uh, was revolutionary when it first came out. I was really blown away by by just the ingenuity of it, and um, essentially, in my opinion, some of the largest models are just absolutely mind blowing. Um, like Kanjira model, um, the large Draco Lich whose name escapes me right now. Caladrax. Uh, yeah, uh, Caladrax. He's great, and we've painted a lot of those, and they're just they. I, I, I find that with the the way that those are done. You get just you can have more fun with a bigger model that would be impractical in pewter and uh, very fragile in plastic. So there's a lot of ingenuity there that I really like. How did you guys come up with? How did you decide on doing Reaper Bones? Uh, why was it developed? And, and what are the plans for it in the future moving forward? Because clearly, like you said, Kickstarter is helping you to to keep that train going. You're on wave like what four or five right now? I think uh, we've done three. Okay, you've done three. Yep. Okay, so what's next for Reaper Bones, and how did you guys come up with the, the need for that? So we, we found a company that did uh, pre-painted plastic dinosaurs, of all sure. things. Okay. And, and we were talking about how we could maybe break into the pre-painted plastic market by, by developing a relationship with this company. And we went to China, and we met with them, and they were really cool people, and it was a family-run business, and we really liked that because we're a family-run business. And... Uh, so we, we developed this relationship, and we sent them a, a, about 30 models, and we developed what we call our uh, Legendary Encounters line, uh, which has, has not been wildly successful, I hate to admit. Now, these are the pre-painted miniatures, yes? The, these were our pre-painted miniatures, and those yeah. launched in 2007. And uh, So uh, was that company also doing the painting, I'm going to guess? Like, yes. Was it kind of completely? Okay, great. Yeah, they, we were basically utilizing the same resources that they used to make these pre-painted plastic dinosaurs. Sure. And... Uh, we, at the same time, around 2010, we're, we're doing a lot of conventions. We're increasing the number of conventions we go to. And we go to a convention and we do a paint-and-take event, which is where we give you a free mini. And you sit down and you paint it. And we, this is how we introduce you to the hobby. And it was becoming prohibitively expensive. The price of tin in the early 2000s was just skyrocketing. And um, we were losing money hand over fist on these paint-and-take events. So we said, well, what if... What if we gave them these legendary encounters figures because they are comparatively inexpensive? Right. Uh, they're about a third the cost of a metal mini. And and we said, well, but those are pre-painted. Who wants to repaint a pre-paint, right? And and I I realized that there's a hobby built around that these days, but at the time, this was this was our thought process. Sure. So we we contacted uh, our our manufacturers in China and we said, can you send them to us unpainted? Um. And they did. And we, we sat down and we tried to paint them. We were like, hey, these are great. We can give these away at our paint and take. 
and then it occurred to us that if we were going to give people these plastic, these, these soft plastic models uh, in our paint and take, that they were not going to then come to the booth and buy the metal one. Sure. They were going to want to buy the product they had just tried a demo of. Right. So we were like, well, we have to release these unpainted plastic figures. And, and as it happens, I think they'll be pretty popular because they're kind of fun and the, the squishy means they don't break and, and they hold exactly the detail right. just, yeah. just fine. So we released them and almost immediately sold out. Like they were, they were ridiculously popular. And we right. said, oh, wow, okay. Well, if this line is going to be that popular, then we should really do something to explode the line very quickly. So we turned to Kickstarter where we could get financing for what we had hoped at the time would be 10 new molds which would allow us to produce 30 new figures and um we're like we we need thirty thousand dollars this will this we we actually needed a hundred thousand dollars but we needed thirty thousand dollars from the public because we had the seventy thousand uh ready ourselves and we're like if if you guys will help us raise thirty thousand dollars uh and at the end of 36 days the fans helped us raise three and a half million dollars and expanded the bones range not by 30 models but by 200 models wow. so it was wow. just an incredible success we, we yeah, were completely unprepared for yeah. um and and it's just been great for us so it, it seems like you kind of sort of you it was sort of planned but then also sort of stumbled into um but has absolutely revolutionized the way i think people think about about Reaper, for sure. I mean, just just the availability of the models, the accessibility of them. Like you said, they don't break as easily. So, like, for example, at our gaming table, my DM just throws all his models in a box. With pewter, they would chip up. But exactly. with these, they're, they're great. And they, they seal well. They paint pretty well. Um, yeah, just they're, they're great. Um, speaking about paint, so 25 years into the company, when did you guys add the paint range to Reaper? And how successful or unsuccessful has that been? Because some of my favorite colors are from Reaper. Um, and like your guys' models, some of them get discontinued, and I curse and swear for a while, and then I find a replacement. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the paints. So uh, our, we launched our ProPaint brand of paint uh, about a year before I started with the company, so about 14, maybe 15 years ago. Okay. Um, and we had uh, a group of artists, professional painters, who won Golden Demons and who win the Gen Con Award and, and the various national competitions at the time. Uh, and these are the same artists who are now winning the Crystal Brush Award and things like sure. that. Um, we had them come down and, and try out our paint because we really wanted to get the word out there. And we thought if we get these professionals using our paint, um, then, then that will that will help promote the brand. Like endorsing it, basically. Like you wear our shoes, you're you know one of our you know like exactly. I'm with exactly. you. Exactly, yeah. And and they came down and basically told us how terrible the pro paint was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, so we hired one of those painters. Her name was Ann Forrester. She's won two Golden Demons and a couple of other international awards. Very well known in the industry. And we we hired Ann Forrester and said, "Can you design a better paint line as a miniatures painter?" something that has the qualities you want since this pro paint doesn't and she spent two years learning chemistry uh and came back and said yes here it is this is your paint line this is the master series paint line um which we've been producing now for about 11 years and uh it's it's been incredible we just expanded it uh, a couple of years ago we added the msphd which is a, a high density pigment range which is designed for better base coats where the, the the core range can be a little thin where you might need two or three layers on a coat to cover mm-hmm. um, but that was actually a design intent because you get better blending 
uh, and smoother transitions from one color to the other if you're trying to do some of the advanced effects if you have a thinner paint. I think that a lot of painters don't understand that at first. I didn't when I first started painting. I would notice different consistencies in, in the quality of the paint in terms of thickness and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was very confused. But you're right. As you start to pay attention to it, like the HD line uh, versus the Master Series line, it's very clear what each one is intended for. Yeah. And then this year we came out with our Master Series Bones line, um, which is a lot like our HD line in formulation. Uh, it's there to capitalize on the Bones, the popularity of the Bones brand, but it introduces 54 unique colors that are not found in either of the other two ranges. Um, and it really gives us the opportunity to showcase what this paint can do when it's combined with our Bones miniatures. Now, are the, is this paint formulated to bind with the plastics better for the Bones, or can you still use it on traditional pewter miniatures? Um, it is designed to work very well on the vinyl of the Bones, but if you've primed um, a, a pewter miniature, it'll work on the pewter mini just fine. Perfect. That's great. Um, well, speaking about painters and Ann Forrester, is she still working with Reaper? Does she still paint for you guys? Does she? Because I know in your guys' store, uh, occasionally you'll find a miniature and you'll find the painted sample of it. And some of these are done by some of the top painters in the world, Jen Haley. So how, um, I guess let's talk a little bit about your paint staff. Who's painting for you? How do they paint for you? And how do you decide which of those 4,000 miniatures needs a painted version? Um, well, Ann Forrester does still work for us. She still runs the paint department. Um, and she still actually mixes uh, and, and color checks and does uh, quality control and, and accuracy matching on every single batch of paint we produce um, every day. That's, that's what she does. She's responsible for that line, and she keeps it running and, and keeps it popular. Um, beyond that, uh, we have uh, one staff painter. Her name is uh, Katie Summer. And uh, Katie paints miniatures for us. And basically what we do is we hand her, these are the minis that are coming out this month, um, paint a couple of them. And she chooses which one she thinks she can get done by the deadline, ultimately. Sure. Um, but with our other painters, like Jen Haley and Rhonda Bender and Derek Schubert, Michael Proctor, uh, Jessica Rich, these are our, our freelance painters. Um, and they paint for a living. And so basically they will choose a couple of minis and they will paint them and shotgun them to us and go, here, I've painted these. Do you want to buy any of them? Oh, wow. So they kind of do it on, on spec, sort of. And, and sometimes guys... we do contract them and say, hey, uh, we, we have a promotion coming up involving this figure. Will you paint it for us? And we'll, we'll make sense. them an offer. But a lot of the paint jobs they do for us are done entirely on spec. Can other painters that are not on that list of top professionals reach out to you about that kind of thing? Let's say there's someone who is a very well-schooled painter and they want to they want to paint for Reaper. Could they reach out to you guys, or if so, how would they do so? Uh, the easiest way for them to reach out, we actually have created on our website what we call the Inspiration Gallery. Sure. You can upload your photo of your painted mini, okay. uh, if, as long as it's a Reaper mini and you know the part number. So you, you, you look up the part number for it, you upload it, you, you associate it with that part number. Um, that comes across my desk every morning. Uh, I look through the entries. Any entries that I think are good enough, I will, I will approve, and those will go on display in our website. Uh, any artists who have particularly caught my eye and I go, wow, they are consistently turning in top-notch work, I send their name over to our art director who, when he has a need, which doesn't come up every day, but sure. when he has a need, he will contact these these fresh blood and go, "Hey, we've noticed your your talent on our on our website. Would you like to do additional work for us and be paid for it? Because we That's don't great. pay you for the work you submit through the Inspiration Gallery. Sure. Um, but you also, when you do that, you get to keep the mini. So if you you can submit the photo to us, we're promoting it, 
and now you've got that many you can put on eBay and go, hey, sure. this many's featured on the Reaper website, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's like an audition, so to speak. And yeah. you, you can audition as many times as you like, as often as you want. Um, and you guys, you know, essentially it sounds like you guys are looking for top quality painters, but, you know, like any top business, you're picky. You want the, you want the best. And we've got we've got several artists who use it, use uh, our inspiration gallery as as their personal gallery for their Reaper stuff because right. one of the things you can do is you can search by the artist. So if if you have uploaded thirty models and you want to show people, it's easier to come to my website and type in your username and filter and go here. Here's the thirty minis I've painted than it is to kind of maintain your own website if you're not tech savvy. Sure. Um, before we get off of artists entirely, is Reaper planning to launch any sort of airbrush paints in the near future? Are you guys planning to get into that market at all? Or because it's a traditional brush, you know, essentially RPG figures have always been traditionally considered brush minis. Um, are you guys going to stick around with that? or All of our paints work just fine in an airbrush as long as you thin it. Um, we recommend a ratio of 50-50 uh, paint and a water solution, and the water solution should be for ninety percent uh, water, ten percent rubbing alcohol. Sure. And then you take that solution, mix it fifty-fifty with the paint, shake that up, put that in your airbrush. It works just fine. Uh, I've airbrushed a lot of the models I've painted that way. So, um, what's next for Reaper? What do you? I know you said you can't tell us anything in particular, but maybe not linked to your guys' twenty-fifth uh, anniversary. Maybe you guys can tell us a little bit about some things that our fans could be excited about down the pike. Well, we've got uh, ReaperCon coming up in late October, and sure. that's a shindig we throw. Uh, this year we're throwing it at the Louisville Premier Event Center, uh, which is just a couple of miles south of the, the Reaper factory. But we have tours where you can come up and you can visit the factory, and we will cast miniatures for you. You can watch the plastic production happening. Um, we'll that's have really cool. all sorts of neat stuff. You can shop directly from our bins. So if there's if there's something you wanted that's that's out of production, you can come through and go. Wow, this is this is the the bowl of it that gets filled when it gets cast. So you can just take directly from that. Um, How big is the warehouse or the factory? Uh oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> is it is twenty thousand thirty thousand square feet bigger? Uh, it's fairly big, and we actually have in the last two years added on uh, additional space to it. We've wow. We've, added an annex onto the front this year we just finished about a month ago adding an annex to the back uh we just put in a mezzanine that allows us to access the second floor because uh, it was a tall building and it was only one story or it's, it's two stories in height but it only had one floor so we've put sure. in a mezzanine so now we have a two-story building um we've got a lot of storage going on there so we're expanding the square footage uh every year uh, so I actually have no idea how big it is from a square footage standpoint. <laughs> it's, grown, it's grown beyond measure at this point. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit more about ReaperCon before we sign off. Um, what can people who aren't able to attend, what should they expect when they can attend? And uh, what kind of stuff do you guys have planned? So we, we bring in, I think this year we're bringing in 38 professional painters and sculptors. Okay. Uh, so and lots of classes, I'm guessing. Lots of classes where they, they will teach. Uh, they also sit down in a large common area when they're not in class where you can approach them and, and sit down one-on-one with them and go, hey, I'm really struggling with this technique, and I know you're very good at it. This is, you show them an example of your painted work, and they can show you, you know, some, some pointers. Uh, I, I hate to say what you're doing wrong, because that implies that there's a right way and a wrong way to do things, but they can sure. show you better techniques to do Yeah, things. areas for improvement, that kind of thing. 
in addition to that, we have a 20-table gaming area set up where you can play Pathfinder, 5th Edition D&D. We've got a board game library. We've got Savage Worlds games going on. We've got uh, uh, there's a group who comes in and they do Star Wars role-playing games. There's fiasco games, things like that. Wow. Um, okay. So lots of gaming, lots of learning, and just generally socializing with top-notch painters, sculptors, uh, industry professionals of all sorts. Sounds like yeah. fun. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. How many attendees are you guys expecting this year? Uh, we'll get uh, about 500 people this year. That's awesome. Um, well, Brian, this has all been really great information. I, I think that our, our fans are going to love hearing about this. I can't personally wait to see what's coming down for Reaper Down the Pike. And have... uh, Oh, John's got one more question one for more you. One more question for you, Ryan. <laughs> sure. Um, so I know you guys have your sculptors. And uh, how, how do they – do you guys receive requests for models and you try it out and see if it works or do they actually make the models? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, in, in regards to just like if someone was like, hey, I really want, um, I don't know, um, a gem dragon and they want its hide studded with gems or whatever. Like do you guys take fan requests or is it more internally what you guys decide you're going to work on? Yes, that's, that's a better way to ask it. On our message boards, we have a, an ongoing thread that uh, we cap off once a year and restart a new version of it that's minis we'd like to see. Oh, okay. Uh, when we cap that list, we'll take that list, we'll import it into a spreadsheet, we'll send that to our art director, he'll go over it. Uh, a lot of the sculpts we get are done on spec. Uh, sure. Sculptors go, here, I, I sculpted this for Reaper, I think you guys might like it. Um but we also have where the art director will go through a list and go, hey, I've noticed we have this hole in our line and the fans are asking. We don't have any uh, gem dragons is a perfect example. We have no sure. gem dragons. So uh, if the art director feels like there's a, a market for it, then the art director will uh, summon our concept artist, uh, uh, Izzy Collier, and say, Izzy, draw me a gem dragon. When Izzy turns in a, a, uh, the gem dragon that finally gets approved, because there is an approval process, uh, we'll send that gem dragon out, and usually we shotgun that out to four or five different sculptors, and we sure. let them bid on it. Oh, okay. The ones who's most exciting, okay, I will do that one, and this is what I want for it, and we we'll go, okay, we'll take it, uh, and then this is your deadline, and they turn in the sculpt. So wow, that's great. That's, so it's yeah. it's a it's a freelance process where these guys, if they're excited about the concept, they can essentially like opt to to do it for you. That's that's really really interesting. Uh huh. So neat. Okay, well, um, do you have any other questions? No, I, All right, great. I'm good. Thank well, you. Brian, you've been really generous with your time today. Thank you very much for everything. And um, I, I hope uh, if we, we won't be at ReaperCon this year, but we, we'll try to get there next year. And I can't wait to see what you guys are doing. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And if you guys want to hold on just one second, we'll be right back after this. Hey, guys, it's Caleb with War Council. Are you a purveyor of stuff? Are you an entrepreneur with something to preneur? Do you sell things related to tabletop gaming, painting, or some other aspect of the miniatures hobby? Would you like to advertise to, like, at least three listeners a show? Then you've come to the right place. War Council has a limited number of sponsorship slots available. Each slot guarantees you a banner ad on the White Metal Games website, and we're at, like, 300 likes on Facebook right now, so clearly at least 300 people can be bothered to click the like button at some point in time in their lives. For $20 a month, we'll promote you and your products on the show. For $10 more, you can have an entire 30-second commercial. Like this one, only, you know, better and more relevant and stuff. Email us at info at for more information. And until you do, put your manies where your mouth is. 
Hey guys, welcome back. We're going to jump into our one-minute rant or gush tonight. Um, we've actually been internally debating whether or not one-minute rants or gush should even stay. Because frankly, we're, we're, we know the podcasts are getting longer, which I don't think people really mind per se. We're still coming in about 90 minutes yeah. for most episodes. But I feel like that's long. I feel like I'd like to be around the one-hour mark. Mm-hmm. So if we were going to get rid of something that we thought about, we'd get rid of one-minute rant or gush. <laughs> one minute less time. Yeah, well, in theory. In theory yeah. But, you know, it's really more like when we rant or gush, it's really more like ten minutes. minutes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, okay, so I'm going to um, gush a little bit tonight. I'm going to gush on the new Tyranid Gene Slayer Cult Codex. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't normally do product reviews on the show. I'm not going to change that now. But I will say that I haven't been this excited about a codex for about 20 years. <laughs> Since the last time. Since the last time. Because here's the thing. When I first got into the hobby, I was about 11 years old. No, that's not fair. I was about 14. I'm now 36. So I've 22 years I've been in the hobby, which is sad now that I say it out loud. <laughs> um, so uh, 22 years in the hobby. Tiernas were my first army. And Gene Steeler Cult were this weird army in the back of the book. In the second edition codex, they had these rules for cult. And I was like, what the hell are these? They had no product support, basically. You had a few blisters that were all pewter. So at best, you could build up 10 or so variations of models. Um, the limos had to be custom made. I didn't have the skill set back then to do that. So essentially, Gene Store Cult was lost on me. I couldn't do anything with it. Now, as a grown man and as a commission artist for hire, we have the ability to really impact this. And um, essentially, Gene Store Cult presents a really unique way to play traditional armies like they ally with astro militarum so you can essentially take your old astro militarum armies if you're bored of them and you can rework them as cult armies and so here's what i'm going to gush on uh, now you can ally your old astro militarum with your tyranid armies and you can come up with some really cool combinations here yeah. so essentially if you think about it that way your astro militarum army that's been sitting on your shelf for 10 years collecting dust now here's what you do you send it to us you email us you let us know what you're going to do you send us your old chimeras sentinels even anything really because they can ally we will cult them up for you so we'll add some gene store cult iconography and logos we will swap out the heads of the drivers or the gunners with hybrid heads or whatever so we'll we'll cult up the vehicle for you we can do that through the new upgrade sprues in the gene store cult kits mm-hmm. now all you add to that is some gene store cult models or some tyranid models if you're an allied player and you want to ally your tyranids with it so let's say you've got a 2000 point um astro military army okay add in four or five hundred points worth of cultists Add in uh, a couple Tyranids from the base sets, like let's say uh, a couple squads of Gene Stealers, that sounds appropriate for troops, plus like maybe a, a, Carni- a Hive Tyrant or a Carnifex or something, or I guess you need a, you need a commander. So, uh, you know, whatever, a Magus or a Primarch. Oh, Broodlords are HQs in the Tyranid yeah. Codex. Do a Broodlord. And not to be confused with a Gene Stealer pri- Patriarch. Broodlords are actually different. Uh, and actually, I think Broodlords are upgrades to the... the Actually, yeah, you have to cancel everything I just said. <laughs> they're not they're not a liable HQ choice. They should be, though. Uh, but anyway, regardless of which, send us your old allied Astro Militarum armies. We can cult them up for you. Um, and I love it. I love the fact that this is a new way to play. And it's a way to, if you're bored of your old army, yeah. easily reinvent it. Yeah. Quickly. No. In fact, in the Codex, I was reading this the other day, they don't even say... It literally says, like, on the eve of the uprising, they'll take, they'll, they'll commandeer these chimeras, and they'll just paint the Gene Stiller cult icon onto it. Well, holy shit, we don't even have to do the, re- we don't even have to repaint the model. Right. Like, we just simply create a template or a stencil, and we just stencil that on real quick. Uh, and then that allows us to instantly sort of flip your army in a hurry 
just by adding in Gene Stiller cultists. For me, it's a shoe in mm-hmm. Like, it's a, it's a guaranteed win. In fact, if I had more money, I'd, I'd be buying up an Astro Militarum army right now. But I don't. I'm broke. Um, <laughs> not because we don't have great clients, but because life is just expensive. <laughs> yeah. um, so anyway, that's that's my that's my gush. I love the Gene Stiller Cult Codex. I want to do an army. Please, 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 if you're an Astro Militarum player out there and you want to have us revamp your army, email us at info at whitemetalgames.com. We'd love to talk to you about how cheap it can be to get your army back on the table as Astro, as Gene Stiller Cult. Do you have anything you'd like to rant or crush about? Uh, no, nope, I'm out today. Got nothing. Okay. Got nothing for you. He is a he is a beacon of tranquility and peace. He is a Buddhist <laughs> monk. Okay, well we're gonna take a quick break then and we'll jump in with our outro right after this. Are you a tabletop quality painter in the Raleigh area with ten hours or more a week to spare? Have you ever thought about becoming a commission painter before but you weren't sure it was right for you? White Metal Games is looking for talented painters in the Raleigh area to join our studio team. You're paid by the job, not by the hour, so you can paint at your own pace. Send us pictures of your painted models to info at whitemetalgames.com, and we just might be interested in speaking with you. Put your minis where your mouth is. Alright guys, welcome back. Uh, We are engaging the outro now, so uh, this is the end of the podcast. It was great uh, having you guys here, and thanks for listening. Um, I should point the, out that the podcast has grown quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Like, That's we have, uh, we generally get about a thousand unique listeners a month now. Which is fantastic. Which Thank is you great. guys for listening. Yeah, <laughs> we absolutely. appreciate it. I never would have imagined it would have grown this much in just a year, really. No, and I mean, obviously, we don't have a thousand clients, so these are people that are just hobbyists that are interested yep. in what we're doing. Yeah. Or so, maybe just interested in learning from our mistakes. I don't or know. just hearing us talk. Yeah. <laughs> Hearing, yeah, you hearing me breathe <laughs> so um, but yeah as always like if you guys have any comments or any questions or things that you'd like us to add to the show just leave those in the uh, comment section of YouTube or yeah. through iTunes give mm-hmm. us some uh, some reviews so well you'll really I mean the comment section you can really you can do it on the Facebook page and mm-hmm. um, when we do a blog post you can comment there although the Bell of Lost Souls comments are usually crap <laughs> Yeah, they're usually like, like one or two. Yeah, I think the last one was like too many ads. Or like, what are you talking? Yeah, about? I was like, the guy was like, you know, six ads for one thing, and I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, there's no ads. Yeah, I guess maybe he means the ads between segments. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, like, here's the thing: I would love for people to pay to to advertise on the show. In fact, one of the things I've been I've been recently asking people is if you're a service out there and you want to do a trial period, I'll give you a quarter for free. And by quarter, I mean I mean three months. I'll give you a three-month trial period as a sponsor. And if you want to try that out, see if you, you boost your sales or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm more than happy to give that a go. I realize that you're making a leap of faith. I'll make the leap with you if you want to advertise on the show. I'll give you one free one free quarter. Um, so that's – but it's first come, first serve. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but for the uh, next week, or next two weeks, next podcast, we mm-hmm. are going to be going over color theory. I think Val might be doing that one. Yeah, he, I mean, he knows a lot about color theory. He was trained classically at the St. Petersburg Academy of Art. Yeah. So he knows quite a bit. Very. Um, and so, but we're really, we're not going to, not to dissuade people, um, I do not, uh, I did not go to that school. Um, so for me, color theory is more of like a, a you know, kind of a, um, a poor man's solution. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like we're going to give you color theory 101. Yeah. Like here are the basics of color theory, which to be fair, any painter should know and any painter can learn. I mean, a lot of this stuff you learned growing up, like why does green look good next to purple? Why does blue look good next to red? Why 
does white brighten all things? Why does black darken all things, et cetera, et cetera? Right. So we're going to go into the basics of those things, um, and we'll talk about the very, very sort of cut-and-dry color theory. Hopefully, it'll help to improve your paint quality quickly, and you can explore color theory more on your own privately, but we're going to give you the, the, the kind of the top-down view. And we'll be talking with an artist who is, in fact, colorblind. So the interesting thing there is that it proves to you you don't have to be color knowledgeable to be a good painter. He's actually a really good painter, uh, considering the fact that he has no color in his vision. He sees in so grayscale. He's 100% colorblind? He, he says he sees in grayscale. Really? Which is crazy to me. But he said he's learned tones of color. So, for example, I looked at one of his models, it was like purple. And he had highlighted up appropriately, I might add. So I, I think he, he's learned which colors are which, and he reads the bottles well. And I think that in the same way, you can kind of like a blind person can, can learn a house by sound, creaky floorboards, and, and just density of a room. Uh, I think that he has also learned that as well. He looks at the density of the pigments in the bottles in terms of like how rich they are. And he uses that as kind of like a guide. Like this is clearly a dark red. It must be because it's a dense color yeah. you know what i mean interesting so i think there's some stuff we can learn from there i'm mean, really excited to talk to him so he'll be our next guest cool all right well uh, until next time uh, guys we'll uh we'll see you next time and you want to use your catchphrase <laughs> my name is caleb dylan with white metal games <laughs> phil corbin with white metal games and until next time put your manis where your mouth is okay.